Hello. Welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Welcome to episode 13, and we call this the post-war baseball boom. Today, we are going to cover opening days from 1946 through 1962. So let's get started. 1946, I call Normalcy Returns. The Reds opened spring training in February, and it was clear from the outset that 1946 baseball would be far different from the past five wartime seasons. 33 Reds players who had spent the entire 1945 season in the military reported to Tampa for spring training, and eight of them reclaimed their regular positions. With the veteran players regaining their form, only 10 of the 34 players who had played for the Reds in 1945 made the team in 1946. The Reds anticipated a boom in attendance by war-weary fans. To accommodate the increase, they renovated Crosley Field, adding seats in front of the right field bleachers. They also added an orchestra pit of sorts that would house the band for night games but afforded 150 additional seats for opening day. Club officials were pleased to occupy a new box at the back of the grandstand. The entire park was freshly painted including the light towers. Adding seats in right field eliminated the the need for temporary seating in the outfield for the opener, but the seats reduced the distance from the right field line from 366 feet to 342 feet. The April 16 game time temperature was 51 degrees and fur coats and blankets were abundant enough that the 30,069 fans resembled a football crowd. The customary ceremonies ended with Mayor Stewart nearly throwing another wild pitch, and in a major departure from past years, the ranks of the Finley Market Association parade had dwindled to just a dozen participants. More disappointing to Reds fans was the announcement that beer would not be sold by vendors in the stands and would only be available at concession stands under the grandstand because of a beer shortage. This inconvenience may not have mattered at the cold opener, but it would rankle fans later in the summer. The game turned out to be one of the most disappointing contests in opening day history, as the Reds blew a three-run lead in the ninth inning and lost to the Cubs 4-3. Now, let's go to 1947. After the cold weather affair in 1946, 72-degree temperatures greeted the early arriving sellout crowd of 33,383 at Crosley Field. More students than usual were in attendance as public school authorities recognized the importance of opening day by starting classes one hour earlier at 7.30 a.m. and dismissing students at 1 o'clock. Those grateful students were no longer forced to tell fibs about their grandmother's demise or their need for urgent dental care. The crowd was treated to a pregame concert by Smitty's band, and to a re-energized Finley Market Parade after the group's disappointing showing in 1946. 500 partygoers participated in the parade from downtown and around the ballpark, each carrying a balloon that was released during the ceremonies. The balloons contained a coupon redeemable at the Finley Market store, and the weight of the coupon caused many of the balloons to land in the grandstands and the bleachers. The marchers were led by Mayor Carl Rich, 
who had engaged in a game of toss with his chauffeur the previous day in order to prepare for the honor of throwing the first pitch. The mayor lamented, I haven't thrown a baseball for 10 or 15 years. Carrying on a tradition that began two years earlier, Rich received a first toss from the Ohio governor standing in his box seat next to the Reds' dugout. The two-hour and 15-minute game could have been played in less time, but there was a delay in the top half of the fifth inning. A group of 12 youngsters had situated themselves on top of the center field fence as if they were sparrows on a telephone wire, and play was suspended while the umpires instructed them to return to their seats. The crowd did not seem to mind the interruption, as the Reds were already leading 3 to nothing on their way to an eventual 3 to 1 win. Fans were happy to have the 4-year opening day losing streak come to an end. Now we're going to go to 1948. This is called My Word. What a nice party, pal. And we're going to diverge from our usual history lesson and just talk about the Enquirer Society Edler and how she described the opening day festivities. Jane Finneran was the Enquirer Society Edler, and she decided in 1948 to attend her first opening day. Finneran regularly oversaw coverage of more sophisticated gatherings, such as the symphony, the opera, and other celebrations attended by the elite citizens of Cincinnati. Her April 19 opening day experience exposed her to a different slice of Cincinnati life. In her detailed account of opening day the following morning, Finneran described her journey through the city's picturesque and historic West End to Crosley Field, or, in her words, Mr. Powell Crosley's rambling estate. As she made her way into the park, she joined closely packed lines of men, women, and children of all ages and sizes as they squeezed through the turnstiles with, quote, long treasured tickets clutched in excited hands, unquote. Upon entry, she noted that the various officials in attendance added dignity to the occasion including the assistant chief of police with, quote, his silvered leaves of office glistening on his blue uniform. Flags whipping in the breeze topped the tiers of animated pinpoint faces, she wrote. Finneran was directed to the alfresco stands. Hmm, those were called the bleachers by the fans. Were a diplomat, she said, really an usher, advised her, quote, you gotta have a ticket, unquote, to enter the, quote, sun parlor, unquote. Her press pass eventually was an acceptable substitute. Clearly, Finneran was more of an observer than an enthusiastic fan, as noted by this observation. Quote, the rhythmic crunching of peanuts, The gurgling of amber-colored liquids formed an undercurrent to the shrieks of approval or condemnation as all 32,000 spectators, minus me, took a hand in directing the game, unquote. Finneran described how Smitty's band led the, quote, Grand March of Honor Guards of Soldiers, unquote, along with representatives from the U.S. Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Finley Market Rooters with their massive sign, quote, tastefully edged in tissue paper fringe, unquote. Finneran marveled at the precision of the ceremonies that were carefully planned, the presentation and raising of the American flag, and the attentive players as they lined up along the baselines to the delight of the crowd. Finneran went on to describe the flowered hats and coats that were peeled off as the 81-degree temperature made them unnecessary, and the ushers who who shrieked, sit down, during the proceedings. She watched men with portable radios press their ears 
to hear Wait Hoyt describe the play on the field, the omnipresent vendors hawking peanuts, drinks, ice cream, pennants, and souvenirs, and fans who were recording movies of the game. Finneran also reported on the cheers of the crowd, such as, quote, get in there and swat them, unquote, and, quote, what's the matter, Dixie? Can't you steal, unquote. The game Finneran saw was the year's largest gathering for an opener in the National League with 32,147 in attendance. Okay, after that little detour, let's go to 1949. This is called the year in which there are more fans than ever to see a game. For the first time in 1949, the opening day game was televised, making it possible for loyal fans to see the game whether they had a ticket or not. Although the attendance inside Crosley Field did not set any records, the game was the most watched opening game to date. Because of the availability of black and white television sets, fans without tickets were elbowing their way to choice tavern seats or were gathering in crowded living rooms throughout the 100-mile radius of the city to watch the opener. At least 20,000 television sets have been sold in the area, and it is a safe bet that tens of thousands of fans were able to see the opener through the new medium. Viewers at home were able to witness the pregame ceremonies that they might only have read about in newspaper accounts if they had not attended an opener in person. The Finley Market Parade around the ballpark featured Grand Marshal James Gibbs, the owner of Gibbs Cheese and Sausage at the market. Gibbs' father had helped organize the parade when the family business moved to the market in 1922, and his son Jeff has continued the family tradition by serving as a longtime organizer of the pregame event. Not televised was the array of airplanes that advertised an upcoming championship boxing fight, a Dayton, Ohio spaghetti house, and the Galley Food and Bar Restaurant that still operates today at nearby Lunkin Airport as the Sky Galley. A sellout crowd of 32,118 enjoyed a 3-1 victory over the Cardinals for the Reds' third consecutive opening day win. Okay, let's move to 1950. I call this a new tradition is born and another passes. On the eve of the April 18 opener, United Press sports writer Carl Lundquist, who would later become an esteemed writer for Sports Illustrated, declared that opening day, quote, is H day when Americans play hooky everywhere from the White House down to public school number 69 to open the baseball season. Kids, old men, housewives, office and factory workers. Even President Truman will make it out to the old ball game. The weather on opening day could not have been better, and one sexist writer noted that the women were dressed in, quote, their most colorful finery as they filed in the Crosley Field with their men to see and be seen. But the feminine contingent could not have told the starting pitchers if their best spring bonnets depend upon it, unquote. The fans of the fairer sex were part of another large crowd of over 31,000, but 1,500 bleacher seats went unsold. That was most likely due to the red string of second division finishes. The festivities included a first toss by the highest-ranking government official to perform the honor in Cincinnati's history, 
Republican Senator Robert Taft. Taft was the eldest son of President William Howard Taft and a lifelong Reds fan. Taft showed off his grin as he tossed a, quote, good, true ball, unquote, to the Democratic mayor of Cincinnati from his colorful, bunting-draped box, and the mayor then delivered the official first pitch. Missing from this year's celebration was the colorful annual performance of the Oxford, Ohio bricklayer, Harry Toby, who was reported to have strutted and danced for 56 straight years on opening day. Known to fans as simply Toby, he was arguably the biggest Reds fan ever. He had passed away just 20 days before the opener, appropriately buried in his familiar red-trimmed white suit with a red tie embossed with the Reds logo. Toby was a famous gate crasher, and his attire enabled him, according to Toby, to gain admission without paying to 20 World Series games, which was actually one more than the Reds had actually played during his 80-year life. This is what Toby said, quote, I just march in with the band, any band. The men who throw the gates wide open for the band usually think that I am part of the act in my clownish attire. Baseball players, umpires, and newspapermen often escorted Toby through the press gate if there was no band present for the occasion. The Reds decided to add what would become a fan favorite to Crosley Field, a new organ. The Morning Enquirer told excited fans that, quote, there will be more music than you get at a hillbilly jamboree, including organ music between innings, unquote. Let's move to 1951, and we simply entitle this one, Miss America. Cincinnatians woke up to the coldest opening day weather in years, and thousands boarded streetcars for the last time to make the trek to Crosley Field. Streetcars stopped running in Cincinnati just 13 days later in favor of motor buses. The Reds had anticipated one of the largest post-World War II crowds in history and had installed extra seats in the outfield. But the cold weather limited attendance to just over 30,000. The Reds and Pirates took pregame batting practice amid snow flurries. Now, the highlight of pregame activities was the introduction of Miss America, Yolande Betbezi of Alabama, to an excited crowd. Betbezi, an opera singer, was a trailblazer for women's rights. She had reluctantly posed in a swimsuit during pageants, but refused to do so after she won the title. The Miss America organization claimed that Bebesby was pivotal in directing the organization away from its focus on beauty instead of focusing on intellect, values, and leadership abilities. Joining Bebesby for pregame ceremonies was William Dummy Hoy. Born in Cincinnati in 1862, Hoy became deaf at age three after suffering from meningitis. He graduated as class valedictorian from the Ohio State School for the Deaf. After opening a shoe repair store in Cincinnati and playing baseball on weekends, he went on to become the most accomplished deaf player in Major League history, playing for the Reds between 1894 and 1897 and again in 1902 as a center fielder. Although the word dumb was the acceptable way at the time to describe a person who could not speak, the epithet unfairly came to connote stupidity. Despite the pejorative label, Hoy was regarded as one of the most intelligent players of his era. 
He was inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame in 2003. Hoy joined future Reds Hall of Fame pitcher Yule Blackwell on the mound before the start of the opener, appearing in a vintage 1876 red uniform to throw the first pitch, and he did so underhanded. He could see, if not hear, the standing ovation he received. Blackwell would go on to have his shortest appearance ever on opening day, being lifted in the third inning by manager Luke Sewell after allowing the only runs Pittsburgh would need to secure a 4-3 win. Let's move on to 1952 and Jingle Bells. It was the Finley Market Association's 100th anniversary, so the Rooters were eager to celebrate the auspicious occasion. They marched into the ballpark behind Judge Ralph Conan, who served as Grand Marshal. As the parade circled the field in weather that was more conducive to skiing than baseball, Smitty's band played Jingle Bells, followed by their rendition of Wait Till the Sun Shines, Nelly. The cold weather even affected the first toss in the governor and the first pitch from the mayor as both men uncorked wild throws that eluded their targets. The Enquirer suggested, quote, A little more practice, Mr. Mayor, when the mayor's pitch missed home plate by six feet. Fur coats and flowered hats dotted the crowd, with the majority of fans bundled up in scarfs and blankets. Fans retreating to warmer areas under the grandstand could enjoy a new fish fry for Easter week, competing in popularity with the perennial ballpark favorite, the hot dog. The weather was so biting that 12 separate bonfires were set in the temporary outfield seats, the bleachers, and the right field grandstand. The Cubs danced up and down in their dugout in order to stave off the cold on their way to a 10-inning, 6-5 victory. Now, as we move to 1953, we call this portion of the episode simply Red Legs. McCarthyism, meaning the practice of making accusations that communists within the United States were guilty of subversion or treason, was rampant in the spring of 1953. Cincinnati team officials were so concerned about the anti-communist sentiment that the club changed its nickname from Reds to Red Legs four days before the opener. The new and previous official name of the team had been used interchangeably since mid-1930s anyway. And this change lasted for about seven years. In 1960, after McCarthyism waned, the club returning, returned to calling itself the Reds. April 13 saw the debut of the Milwaukee Braves, who had moved from Boston in the National League. It was the first time since 1898 that Chicago, St. Louis, or Pittsburgh did not serve as the Reds' opening day opponent. Milwaukee Rooters wasted no time in taking part in opening day traditions. A six-foot-long bat engraved with the words, quote, presented by the Milwaukee Association of Commerce with all good wishes, unquote, was presented to Braves manager Charlie Grimm before the game. As was customary, the Finley Market Association presented a floral display with similar wishes to new Reds manager Rogers Hornsby. For the third consecutive opening day, fans were disappointed to experience both cold weather and a loss. The Braves won 2-0 in a game that took slightly less than two hours. A hearty 30,103 fans braved cold temperatures with a wind chill of 41 degrees. 
Fortunately, according to the Enquirer, many in the crowd, quote, had taken the necessary antifreeze precautions by raiding the family cellar before reaching the ballpark. Now, as we move to 1954, we call this year simply breaking barriers. Fans on April 13 witnessed history. During the customary pregame ceremonies, Governor Lausch made another first toss from his flag-draped box next to the Reds' dugout, but the ball was not delivered to a man. Instead, the ball was tossed to Vice Mayor Dorothy Dolby so she could throw out the first pitch. Dolby became the first woman ever to do so on opening day. Dolby had been asked to do the honors by Mayor Edward Waldvogel, who had become ill and insisted that Dolby assume his official duty. Ms. Dolby, wearing a skirt, reluctantly marched to the pitcher's mound and, contrary to fans' expectations, hurled a 60-foot pitch to city manager C.A. Harrell. The hurl, low and arguably on the outside corner of home plate, caught Harrell by surprise, and he was assessed with a passed ball when it eluded his glove. Dolby became the city's first female mayor a month later when Mayor Waldvogel passed away. Now, in addition, we had news about the breaking of the color barrier. Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier in 1947, seven years earlier, by becoming the first African-American to play in the major leagues. But full acceptance of minorities evolved slowly. It took the Reds several years, but integration began to increase in the mid-1950s. Shortly after Dolby's pitch, the players from both teams were introduced with the African-American players lining up with their respective teams. When the Reds were introduced, African-American Chuck Harmon and Nino Escalera, a Puerto Rican of African descent, joined their teammates on the field. The Reds became the ninth of the 16 clubs in Major League Baseball to integrate their roster. While not as consequential as the firsts in gender and race, this opener offered a new ballpark twist for Reds fans. Fans in the right field bleachers learned they were sitting in the newly named Sun Deck, complete with a sunburst painting on the rear wall at the top of the bleachers. As the season went on, the painting was covered with a sign reading, Moon Deck, during night games. The weather conditions were perfect, with sunny skies and 81-degree temperatures, making it the Reds' second warmest opener in the 20th century. Cincinnati hosted the largest crowd for an opener in the National League that day, with 33,185 fans. Before the first inning, players were reminded of a new Major League rule they could no longer leave their gloves on the field between innings, believe it or not. The game was the first opener to break the three-hour barrier, largely because of impressive offense for both teams during a thrilling 9-8 win by the Reds. So let's move on to 1955, and we call this year Mr. Muscles Honored. The opening day carnival, as the Enquirer described the events of opening day, usually began 24 hours in advance of the opener. Many organizations and groups held their own parties and get-togethers. Out-of-town followers of the team poured into the city on the day before the game and celebrated well into the evening. According to the Enquirer, quote, it is near dawn before Cincinnati goes to bed. And the Enquirer described opening day as a Queen City institution. 
Quote, opening day in Cincinnati is a festive event that has created nationwide attention. In no city in the country is there the holiday spirit that prevails in Cincinnati on that day. Many cities are famed for their particular celebrations. New Orleans Mardi Gras, New York St. Patrick's Day Parade, Inauguration Day in Washington, Philadelphia's Mummers, etc. But none is more universally accepted than Cincinnati's opening day. Other cities have tried to copy Cincinnati, but they have been unsuccessful. There is no substitute for genuineness. No promotion can create a duplicate of Cincinnati's opening day traditions. Unquote. Festivities on the morning of the game were affected by inclement weather to the point of causing the Finley Market Parade to be rained out. The rain-soaked field, made worse by a steady drizzle, resulted in batting practice being canceled. A tarpaulin kept the infield covered until game time, and when the sun finally came out for the first time at 2.09 p.m., the opening ceremonies began. The main focus of the ceremonies was the coronation of Reds first baseman Ted Klazuski, known as Mr. Muscles or the Crunch King. The Finley Market Association presented Klazuski with a crown and scepter. The crown identified Big Clue as the king of hitters, and the scepter, in the form of a huge bat, contained inscriptions of Klazuski's 1954 achievements. As it turned out, the game played second fiddle to the pregame celebration with the Reds losing to the Cubs 7-5. Okay, we move on to 1956, and this uh, year is titled The Today's Show. On the eve of the April 17 opener, Cincinnati welcomed Dave Garraway and his cast from NBC TV's The Today Show to a celebration on Fountain Square. The cast's appearance on The Walter Phillips Show, a local radio program, was broadcast in front of a live audience beginning at 7 p.m., preceded by 30 minutes of music by Cliff Lee's band. The next morning, a special three-hour Today Show originated from Fountain Square in honor of opening day. To Cincinnatians, the national attention proved what they already knew. Cincinnati was the epicenter of opening day festivities in the United States. With hopes for a championship season, the Finley Market Association pulled out all the stops by arranging a unique means of arrival for Mayor Charles Taft. He was delivered to center field via helicopter. The spectacle this created was duly noted by the Enquirer. What with a helicopter buzzing and television wires streaking the grass, the players risked decapitation or electrocution during pregame warm-ups. Mayor Taft left the helicopter in a fall jacket with 48-degree temperatures making it good television viewing weather, and clowns entertained the fans while he made his way to the mound. Schmitty's band tried to warm up the chilly crowd with oompa music, but it was to no avail. Governor Lausch delivered his ninth and last opening day toss to Taft, and perhaps the mayor needed more of a warm-up in the cool weather, as the Enquirer was less than complimentary about his throwing prowess. Quote, Hisner was charged with the season's first wild pitch, an underthrown curve that bounced far in front of the plate and rolled by catcher C.A. Harrell, who in private life is a city manager. Unquote. <laughs> 
The sellout crowd enjoyed the mayor's unusual manner of entrance and laughed at his pitch. The 1956 opener featured the addition of air conditioning in the dugouts and the debut of a future Hall of Famer, 20-year-old Frank Robinson, who appeared in his new sleeveless uniform that the Reds had adopted for the 1956 season. Fans were entertained during breaks in the action by organist Ronnie Dale. Dale would become the first big league organist to lead the crowd in choruses of charge. He also holds the distinction of being the first organist to be thrown out of a game by an umpire. His offense? The umpire was irked by the charge fanfare. The crowd remained in a jovial mood for eight innings as Joe Nuxall pitched a gem and the Reds entered the ninth tied with the Cardinals. However, Nuxall bobbled a two-out inning-ending ground ball and then he served up a game-winning home run to future Hall of Famer Stan Musial. We moved to 1957 and we simply call this a big scoreboard. Cincinnati's three daily newspapers, the Enquirer, the Post, and the Time Star, almost did not provide coverage of the April 16 opening day festivities and game. The three papers were threatened with a strike that would have stopped the presses just before the opener, but the shutdown was averted by a last-minute settlement. Fans who had long relied upon the newspapers to keep them informed about the Reds were relieved that the strike did not take place, particularly because hopes were running high for a possible championship season. In 1956, the Reds had surprised experts by battling the Dodgers and Braves in a fierce pennant race that lasted until the final weekend of of the season. The downtown rooters, preparing to march in the Finley Market Parade, as well as many spectators, were treated to something special from the Union Central Life Insurance Company. The company's bells regularly echoed throughout the downtown section of the city. But for opening day, the chimes played Take Me Out to the Ball Game at 9 a.m. and again at noon. Fans took in a new sight as they hurriedly rushed through the portals leading to the grandstand and the bleachers. A newly constructed 55-foot-high and 65-foot-wide scoreboard replaced the original model that had been used since 1912. The new scoreboard was the first in baseball to display each hitter's batting average, but because its larger size would interfere with the path of balls headed its way, a new ruling deemed the entire scoreboard to be in the field of play, including the 40 feet that extended above the outfield wall in left center field. In pregame festivities, the perennial Smitty's Band entertained the crowd, followed by the Finley Market Band. There were three brief speeches by the newly elected governor of Ohio, William O'Neill, Mayor Charles Taft, and Judge Ralph Conan. Conan represented Finley Market and made presentations to Roy McMillan and Johnny Temple as, quote, baseball's greatest double play combination, unquote, and to Frank Robinson, who was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1956. Also in attendance was a longtime fan and opening day attendee, Kentucky Governor Happy Chandler. The Reds were in a quandary. With two governors present, who would receive the honor to toss the first ball to Mayor Taft? Chandler, ever the Kentucky gentleman, solved the dilemma by offering to be the umpire for the mayor's first pitch. Fortunately for the hitters, Chandler would return to his regular occupation after the game. He bellowed strike, even though Taft's pitch was so far off course that the real umpires and the managers preparing to discuss the ground rules 
headed for cover to avoid being struck by the misguided missile. A special treat for the fans was the stirring rendition of the national anthem by Marion Spellman. Spellman was an icon in Cincinnati as a regular on the popular 50-50 Club, a live morning show on WLWT-TV 5 in Cincinnati. She was known for her work with the Cincinnati Playhouse, the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, and the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra. Her signature songs were Soon There Will Be Christmas, Christmas Lullaby, and There's No Time Like Christmas Time. Lyrics specifically written for her by her friend and fellow Cincinnati icon, Ruth Lyons. She became the regular singer, I mean, that is, Marion Spellman did, of the national anthem at Crosley Field openers as well as the early openers at Riverfront Stadium. Now let's move on to 1958. We title this year simply Baseball in California. Although baseball had indisputably been the national pastime for nearly a century, there was no major league team west of the Rocky Mountains until the New York Giants and Brooklyn Dodgers stunned their heartbroken fans by moving to San Francisco and Los Angeles, respectively, before the 1958 season. The two teams had made history for 67 years as beloved rivals in the Big Apple. Given the dramatic moves made in the offseason by the Giants and the Dodgers, Reds fans became extremely nervous when Powell Crosley Jr. threatened to move the Reds if city council did not purchase and clear additional land for 2,600 parking spaces near Crosley Field. Newly elected council members were well aware of the betrayal by the New York franchises, so they quickly approved the request. With the Reds committed to staying at Crosley Field, they invested their energy in improving the ballpark. The unpopular inner fence in right field that reduced the distance for a home run from 366 to 342 feet was removed. The fence, along with seating inside of it, had been added in 1953 to increase the home run chances of Ted Klazuski. The ballpark also received another paint job with venerable steel beams and some seats sporting a bright orange-red look. The portals that fans passed through to find their seats were painted in robin's egg blue, and the reds even added to the color changes as they donned new uniforms for home games, white with red pinstripes and red raglan sleeves. The Finley Market Rooters, wearing their now traditional cardboard hat bands, arrived on the field with colored balloons. They joined in a march with Smitty's band, the members of which were decked out in black uniforms with gold braid. The Phillies came to town for the first time ever on opening day, and the game turned out to be one of the most controversial in opening day history. With the Reds leading 4-3 after six innings, the Phillies' Richie Ashburn was on first, and Granny Hamner hit a frozen rope down the left field line, rolling into the Reds' bullpen area before a fan reached out and touched the ball. Ashburn scored from first to tie the game, and Reds manager Bertie Tebbett stormed from the dugout for a lengthy dispute with the umpires, unsuccessfully arguing that it was a ground rule double because the fan had interfered with play. The otherwise good-natured crowd lost its collective temper during the uproar. The fans were displeased again when the Phillies scored the game-winning run in the eighth inning on three undisputed singles. 1959. Happy days are here again. Although the Cincinnati Reds had changed their name to Red Legs in 1953, to avoid the appearance of being associated with communism, the team's traditional name of Reds had survived 
and had even regained prominence in the late 1950s. Prior to the April opener on the 9th, which was the earliest opener to date, the team's general manager, Gabe Paul, conceded that either name, Red, Reds, or Red Legs, could be used when referring to the city's baseball team. Prior to the opener, 738 seats had been added to Crosley Field down the left and right field foul lines. Temporary seats were being sold in the outfield for the last time. Although additional cooling was hardly necessary on the 53-degree cloudy day, the team had installed large fans in the rear of both the upper and lower grandstands making Crosley Field the first in the major leagues to be, quote, air-cold, unquote. The pregame festivities were highlighted not by parades or music, but rather by the return of Ted Klazuski and the theatrics of Happy Chandler, the Kentucky governor. Big Clue had been traded to the Pirates in 1957 after a disappointing season, but he remained popular in Cincinnati. The early arriving fans were enthralled with watching Klazuski take batting practice, and Governor Chandler attracted the fans' attention too, as he was a popular politician in the bordering state of Kentucky. Chandler was chosen to make the first toss of the season when new Ohio Governor Micah DeSalle decided not to attend because of pressing business in Columbus. Apparently, such business never let up, as DeSalle cited the same reason for not attending the next three years. Anyway, flashing his irrepressible grin that earned him his nickname of Happy, Chandler put on a show when it came time to make the first toss. Standing in his box next to the Reds' dugout, Chandler acted like a pitcher who was shaking off signals from his catcher. He shook his head several times and instructed his catcher, Cincinnati Mayor Donald Clancy, to get back, get back, before he threw a perfect toss. Clancy, with the honor of the first pitch, then strode confidently to the mound before throwing a high, wild pitch that hit the screen designed to protect patrons in the boxes behind home plate from foul balls, not first pitches. The game with Pittsburgh was of special interest because the two clubs were involved in the biggest trade of the offseason. Pirates third baseman Frank Thomas had signed with the Reds, and Reds third baseman Don Hoke had joined the Pirates. Despite the hype surrounding these two players, neither one played a significant role in the opening day outcome as the Reds won an opener for the first time in four years and only the second time in ten years notching a 4-1 triumph. After the victory was secured, Crosley organist Ronnie Dale appropriately sent the fans home to the tune of Happy Days Are Here Again. We moved to 1960, and we call 1960 the year that the outfield belongs to the players. Finally, baseball purists received the gift they had requested for decades. Red's management decided to play the game on opening day using the field dimensions that were used in every other home game of the season. Historically, the Reds had accommodated the large demand for tickets on opening day by allowing fans to occupy the outer portions of the outfield and parts of foul territory. This practice helped to swell the crowd, but it caused problems. There were no nearby restrooms, and fans who were actually seated on the playing field were rowdy and sometimes interfered with play. Worst, at least for the purists, was the fact that some batted balls that landed beyond the ropes and were rolled ground rolled doubles would otherwise have been caught for outs. Red's management finally relented to increasing public pressure and eliminated the seats for the April 12 opener, reducing the park's capacity. In addition, 
Rather than holding back bleacher seats for sale on the day of the opener, the Reds sold every ticket in advance except for standing room only tickets in the grandstand. Schmitty's band, the longtime official band of the ballpark, trumpeted the start of the opening day celebration precisely as the gates were opened at 12.30. There was the traditional onslaught of early birds, some of whom brought their picnic baskets to enjoy every moment. Mert Gusweiler, an Enquirer columnist writing in jazz jargon of the day, described the ballpark atmosphere and the cats, K-A-T-T-S, which was a term that she used for the fans. The cats turned up en masse to orbit around the park. If the game was a gasser, and it was, it had a neat send-off. A parade like wow put the audience in the mood. Balloons, flags, horns, signs, and all that jazz made its way from right field to infield. This parade was really swinging. And then there was Smitty, the coolest, who really got the message even before the parade and played, You Are My Sunshine. A little taste of the coming holiday made its way on the field too. A real beat bunny, man-size, with tails, checkered, carried on a little chat with some clown, also man-size. Unquote. Sunny skies and 75-degree temperatures brought out fans wearing Bermuda shorts, Easter bonnets, and hats of every variety. Black derbies, velvet berets, green felt tops, and straw hats. The Cats went home happy after a rather easy 9-4 win over the Phillies. Now we move on to 1961. And we call this year Powell Crosley Jr. Remembered. For the first time in 20 years, Cincinnati celebrated a national championship, but the winning team was not the Reds. On March 25th, the University of Cincinnati Bearcats won their first NCAA basketball crown. Three days later, the euphoria came to an abrupt halt. Powell Crosley Jr. died of a heart attack at the age of 74 after owning the Reds for 27 years. When the fans arrived, they noticed that the outside appearance of the park was drastically changed, with the entire brick exterior now painted white. Gone also was the famous Win a Siebler Suit, sign that had been perched on top of the laundry building in left field since 1939. In just over two decades, the company had given away approximately 225 suits to players who had launched home runs that hit the sign. With the laundry building demolished, the Reds erected a 41-foot high screen from the left field grandstand to the scoreboard to protect cars in the new parking lot from balls hit over the wall. Though the game was a sellout, actual attendance was the lowest since 1952 with just over 28,000 fans filing through the turnstiles. Perhaps fans stayed away because of the construction issues along Interstate I-75, or maybe they were put off by the cloudy, chilly weather. Nonetheless, as described by columnist Lou Smith, they missed what they had attracted them in the past. Quote, There is something thrilling about the first look at a baseball diamond after a long winter. The grass isn't as green as it's going to get, but it's still green enough that a white baseball bouncing on it provides a contrast that is sheer beauty to the man who understands such things. Unquote. The fans who chose to stay home also missed something truly remarkable. Dummy Hoy, who was 98 years old and the oldest former major leaguer alive, was given the honor of delivering the first toss of the season. Though 50 years older than Mayor Walton Backrack, who threw the first pitch, Hoy still had good control 
and made a perfect toss, while Backrack's pitch fell 20 feet short of the plate. Hoy would be honored for the last time in Game 3 of the 1961 World Series in Cincinnati just prior to his death. After Marion Spellman's golden voice sang the Star-Spangled Banner, the ceremony became more somber when a moment of silence was observed in tribute to Powell Crosley Jr. The American flag in center field was lowered to half-mast, and the Reds took the field with black armbands in honor of the late owner. The Reds retreated to a surprisingly strong showing when Jim O'Toole pitched a masterpiece to lead the Reds to a 7-1 win over the Cubs. During the rest of the season, the Reds continued to surprise the experts by winning the National League pennant in a championship run referred to as the Miracle on Western Avenue. Now let's move to our last season in this episode, 1962. And we'll call this simply John Glenn in orbit. Everything seemed to be going well prior to the April 9 opener. Ohioan John Glenn had recently circled the globe as the first American in space. Red's general manager, Bill DeWitt, had bought the team from the Crosley family, promising to keep the Reds in Cincinnati and to build a modern municipal stadium. And the University of Cincinnati won its second consecutive NCAA basketball championship. Opening day was cold and blustery with winds averaging 18 to 20 miles per hour, including gusts up to 40 miles per hour. Despite the game selling out and the fans wanting to cheer for the defending National League champions, 2,500 ticketed fans decided to stay warm at home. The actual attendance was 28,506. The weather was so bad that Enquirer staff writer Libby Lackman noted that fans were not dressed in their usual attire. Quote, It was not a fashionable crowd. Looking down from the upper grandstand, an occasional flowered headpiece could be seen among headscarves on the women, hats on the men, unquote. This opener was scheduled to start at the earliest time in history, 1.30 p.m., because the Reds needed to fly to Los Angeles right after the game. After playing the opener, they were set to christen the National League's newest and fanciest ballpark, Dodger Stadium. In an effort to stay warm as long as possible, fans were slow to arrive at the stadium, and when they did arrive, they were entertained by a new musical treat. Four six-piece bands from the well-known Barney Rap group. The sextets were stationed at four different spots in front of the box seats. Rapp had been a famous jazz musician and orchestra leader from the 1920s to the 1940s. His group was known as the Barney Rapp and his New Englanders before moving to Cincinnati and opening a nightclub called The Sign of the Drum in Bond Hill. I will note that a singer in his 1940s band was Doris Kappelhoff. Rapp suggested she change her name because it was too long for the marquee. Ms. Kappelhoff changed her name to Doris Day and went on to have an award-winning career as a recording artist and actress. The 1962 opener went poorly, and so the Boo Birds came out by the third inning. In all likelihood, these were the same fans who had cheered the team to the National League pennant just six months before. The crowd began to work its way out of the park early as the Reds were drubbed by the Phillies 12-4. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for the opening day history from 1946 to 1962. In our next episode, appropriately number 14, we will talk about the rosy openers that began in 1963 with a rookie named Pete Rose. 
This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. <laughs>